Hi everyone and welcome to the show. This is episode number 23 of Pop Culturally Deprived and today we're going to be talking about The Graduate on your Mrs. Robinson, You're Trying to Seduce Me podcast. I'm Andy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vos. This week we are joined by our friend Anya, aka Strangely Literal, who is the co-host of Shadows and Shamblers, an American Gods podcast, where she and her co-host Alan, who you guys have met before, discuss the themes and ideas in each episode as they air. I'm so glad that you could join us this week. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. So Mandy, to kick us off on the show, why did you why have you never watched The Graduate? Because it was an old movie about an affair, so I thought it was stupid. Ugh, not old movies again. Yeah, I'm sorry, that's like my answer for everything, because (laughs) we all know that I had a sheltered and misguided youth, and I think that both of those play very heavily into why I never saw this. One, I was misguided, and I thought all movies, all old movies were stupid, and two, I would never have been allowed to watch a movie like this because it, it was about an affair. And that was not okay in the community that I grew up in. <laughs> so this movie just had nothing going for it that would have made me watch it. I have to say, this is actually the oldest movie that I like. I kind of have actually still have a similar opinion about old movies, like from the 50s and 40s. I'm just not into the aesthetic and the pacing. Thank you for validating me. I appreciate it. Ugh, singing in the rain, right? dumb (laughs) the first time i watched this movie i assumed i was gonna hate it because it was an old movie and when i saw it 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 come well i think this is one of the first really modern movies okay that's fair but before we get into that mandy why don't you give us a bit of background on the film absolutely Uh, The Graduate was released on December 22nd, 1967. It is a comedy-drama film based on the 1963 novel of the same name by Charles Webb. Directed by Mike Nichols and written by Calder Willingham and Buck Henry, the movie starred Dustin Hoffman, Anne Bancroft, and Catherine Ross. And actually, a note on the screenwriters, even though he's credited, Calder Willingham didn't write any of the screenplay that appears in the movie. He was hired to do a draft, and Mike Nichols hated it so much, he basically scrapped the whole thing and had Buck Henry rewrite it just based on the book as a starting place. And so they didn't give Calder any credit originally, but he complained to the Writers Guild, and they ruled that he had to be listed. But according to one of the documentaries that I watched, at the time, all the important people knew that he had basically nothing to do with it. That's interesting. Hollywood politics will always confuse and confound me. Yeah. The Graduate is the 22nd highest grossing movie of all time when adjusted for inflation. In 1996, the Library of Congress selected it for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Nominated for seven Academy Awards, it only won for Best Director, making it the last film so far to have only won in that category. It lost for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. Initially, Mike Nichols wanted Doris Day to play Mrs. Robinson, but she refused because of the nudity required. Joan Crawford, Lauren Bacall, and Audrey Hepburn all wanted the part. 
In fact, reading the list of actors who were either asked to or inquired about the part is like reading a who's who from the 60s. The same goes with the parts for Ben and Elaine. Robert Redford, Warren Beatty, Harrison Ford, Robert Duvall, they were all up for Ben. Patty Duke, Faye Dunaway, Sally Field, Shirley MacLaine, Raquel Welch, they were all up for the part of Elaine. And they actually had a really tough time with casting the role of Ben. The character from the book is very much in line with the typical Hollywood lead from that time, what Mike Nichols used to call a surfboard. So basically tall, blonde, very stereotypical Southern California looking person. And they had a bunch of people who fit that come in and do screen tests and none of it was working. And then they invited Dustin Hoffman to come in. He's at least at the time, was considered to be a very short Jewish-looking man. Mike Nichols said that they needed to cast someone who looked on the outside the way that Ben felt on the inside. And so at one point, Robert Redford was asking Mike Nichols why he didn't get the part, and Mike Nichols asked him, have you ever struck out with a woman? And Robert Redford responded, what do you mean? And Mike Nichols said, yes, that's why I couldn't cast you for this part. <laughs> we needed somebody who would be believable as as an underdog who would be believably awkward yeah and that decision was actually pretty controversial at the time both during production and after the movie was released because leading men in movies in the 60s didn't look like Dustin Hoffman a lot of the reviews sort of picked on Dustin Hoffman and his appearance and his demeanor in a pretty anti-semitic way actually which was kind of unfortunate, but Dustin Hoffman being cast in the role and the subsequent success of the film really opened up Hollywood for different kinds of people being in lead roles. Okay. Roger Ebert claimed that it was the funniest American comedy of the year, though he did retract some of his enthusiasm later at the film's 30th anniversary because he felt its time had passed and he felt more sympathy for Mrs. Robinson than Ben, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that makes this movie so good for me, at least, that Mrs. Robinson actually is a sympathetic character, and you can really see the film as a critique on the way that 1960s womanhood was constructed, because Mrs. Robinson is clearly in a really shitty situation. She accidentally got pregnant, was forced to marry a guy who she clearly liked enough, but maybe wasn't necessarily ready to commit to lifelong bond with, and you know, ends up in this very limited role, not a lot of freedom, and she has to try and find fulfillment in some pretty horrible and ultimately unfulfilling ways. Okay. I think we might have a deeper conversation about that hmm. in a little bit. I'm, I'm not entirely sure I agree with all of that, but we'll see. If you are listening and you haven't seen The Graduate, we do like to give a brief synopsis. And Anya has already given a little bit of what the, the movie's about, but Ben is the main character. He's a recent college graduate who has no prospects for his future. He's very lackadaisical and, and listless, I think. And he ends up seduced by the older, much more experienced Mrs. Robinson. And then he meets her daughter and falls in love. And for lack of a better word, hijinks ensue. <laughs> That's a pretty good description. Zany comedy from now on out. <laughs> 
so how did everybody watch this? I actually, at least in the United States, there's a company called Fathom Events that shows operas and classic movies and lots of things on the big screen um, for like you know, two showings in a specific week or whatever. And so uh, in April, Fathom Events showed The Graduate on the big screen for the 50th anniversary. So I actually went to see it at the theater, which was really cool. And then I was going to rewatch it since I did that several weeks ago. But unfortunately, in the United States, at least, it's not available for streaming on any of the subscription services. And since I already paid $14 to go see it, I didn't want to pay for it again. So... How did you watch it, Matthew? I got a bit frustrated as well. I had it recorded from Sky or da- downloaded when it had been on a while ago. And then I went to watch it in the week and I think it had expired and deleted off my Skybox. So <laughs> it's not on Netflix. It's not on Amazon. It wasn't on TV. I rented it on Google Play. And I actually bought the Criterion Collection DVD in preparation for the podcast so I would have all of the DVD extras and commentary tracks and stuff. Although I think when I watched it for the first time when I was in high school, I rented it from Blockbuster. So throwback. This is now one of the 10 DVDs that I own. So compared to my co-host Alan, who was on for Dead Poet Society a few weeks ago. Yeah, my collection is not so hot. (laughs) Mandy, before you went off to see this at the cinema, did you have any expectations over it's really old and it's about something kind of saucy? I honestly had no idea this movie was a comedy. I was expecting it to be some sort of like drama or thriller that was all about this, you know, clandestine relationship between Ben and this much older woman. And that is not what this movie is. I was a little bit shocked, honestly. Um, so I, I I didn't get what I thought I was going to get, is really what I have to say. Okay. The director, you said Mike Nichols won the Oscar for this. Uh, have, you, have you seen any of his other films? I have not. Okay. They're not all old films. Yeah, they are. <laughs> he. This is his second motion picture. He did a lot on stage. Before this, he'd done Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which got 13 Academy Award nominations. He's got a period, he does lots of films, but he's got a period in the 80s where he releases Bloxy Blues, Working Girl, Postcards from the Edge, and Regarding Henry, which is a series of great, great films. But then even more up to date, he did The Birdcage, he did Closer, Strange Jude Law, Natalie Portman thing with Clive Owen, I think, as well. And 2007, he released Charlie Wilson's War, which is an Aaron Sorkin written film. Oh, well, now I need to watch that. It's quite good. The two stars were also Oscar-nominated, Anne Bancroft and Dustin Hoffman. Have you seen them in anything? It turns out that these are more actors where I am just kind of more generally aware of who they are rather than knowing them for their work, kind of the way I was with Bill Murray. (laughs) Hoffman, I've seen Hook, I Heart Huckabees, Meet the Fockers, and Stranger Than Fiction. And that's it. Like, he has a giant filmography, and that's all I've seen. And Bancroft, I've seen G.I. Jane. (laughs) I had no idea she was the same woman. No idea. And honestly, when I heard her name as being in this movie, I confused her with Jenna Rollins and thought that's who she was until I actually watched the movie. Old movies, old actresses. I, yeah, just, I I was not batting a thousand on this one. The quality of the film is so bad. They all look alike. (laughs) 
That is not true. But when I heard her name, I kept seeing Jenna Rowland's face in my head. And I right. somehow thought they were the same person. Okay. And they are so clearly not. <laughs> but I've literally never seen her in anything other than G.I. Jane. Uh, she's in a film called Heartbreakers with Sigourney Weaver, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Ray Liotta, and Gene Hackman. A little bit pastiching this role. Sigourney Weaver and Jennifer Love Hewitt are doing some of this seduction stuff. It's a whole con right. movie. But she's the kind of older mentor of them. It's very nice. Okay. I think I've seen, bit, seen bits and pieces of that one, but I thought it was stupid. So I never <laughs> actually watched it. Okay. But we're here to talk about The Graduate. Mandy, did you enjoy watching The Graduate? Sort of. I didn't actively dislike it. So I think I neither liked it nor disliked it is kind of where I'm coming in on this one. It wasn't okay. a bad movie, but it wasn't my kind of movie. Is that just ambivalence towards it, or is it there were good points, there were bad points, so it sort of averaged out? I think it's more ambivalence than anything. If I was going to like score it, it would probably have more bad points than good points, because Ben was insufferable, <laughs> and he was the main character. Yeah. And so I don't want to give it a score, because that would just be terrible. <laughs> So let's go with ambivalence. Okay. You know, that's actually a really good segue into the first talking point. Let's talk mm. about Ben. Mm, let's absolutely. Let's talk about Ben. Ben is kind of sort of a really terrible human being, you guys. <laughs> not kind of sort of. In a different way than what we've seen before. I mean, he's not Ferris Bueller. He's not Harrison Ford or Indiana Jones. Sorry. You know, I mean, he's, he's really just awful just by being himself. Like, he's not respectful to people. He's not respectful to himself. I mean, this kid has just graduated college, you know, and you know he ha he has no student loans, you know. That that was all mm -hmm. paid for, you know. He, he's got a future, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care about his parents. All he wants to do is whine and float around in the pool and just not do anything until – Mrs. Robinson decides to, you know, take an interest in him. And then he decides to just be terrible <laughs> even more. And I, I don't like him. And then we turn him into a stalker. <laughs> Guys, Ben's a stalker. Like, yeah, in a really is. creepy, creepy way. Mm, not even subtly. No, no, not even a little bit. It ended with him being a stalker, too. I mean, when you just decide randomly, okay, so you've been sleeping with this woman who apparently you gave your virginity to, and so that's a whole thing in itself. But everybody in your family is pushing you, and her husband is pushing you to meet her daughter, who's the same age as you. That's creepy that you mm -hmm. agree to do it, because you're sleeping with her mother. Why would you go out on a date with her daughter? Well, in his defense... I'm not defending him generally, but on that point specifically, he tries really hard not to. No, he doesn't. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to try really hard not to, you just say no. You say, I don't want to. No, thank you. You know? Well, he did. And then his parents said they were going to set up the date for him. See, I would have rather have done that. I would, If he had done that, things would have been so much different. Mm. Or, or you do what he does. You set up the date and then you stand her up. <laughs> You, you don't go on the date. <laughs> right, right. Or, you know, and then you, you go on the date and you're just an absolute dick the whole time. And you make <laughs> yeah. this poor girl, you take her to a strip club yeah. and, and then you make this poor girl cry 
Ah, sorry. It just it upsets me that she just immediately, as soon as he apologized, she was fine, and then they lived happily ever after, and and then he stalks her, and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of <laughs> Ben's behavior is really problematic, especially the stalking parts of it. I think. In order to appreciate this movie at all, you do kind of have to look at it through 1968 goggles, I think. Um, was stalking a thing in 1968? <laughs> in 1968, stalking was a thing that strangers and creepy older people did. It wasn't like, this was just trying really hard to go after the girl, which I think was really encouraged up until... Fairly recently. So this was supposed to be romantic? It was like a, a grand gesture kind of thing? I think so. Well, okay. I think that in general, this kind of stalkery behavior is often portrayed as romantic. Like in another movie, Say Anything, from the 80s. A lot of problematic stalkery things in that movie, too. But I think in this movie, it's actually not portrayed as romantic it is portrayed as slightly problematic just not as problematic as we would see it today his parents certainly didn't seem to think it was problematic oh hey i'm gonna marry elaine wait don't tell anybody because she doesn't know yet i just decided this about an hour ago okay i don't know what to do with that i just i, I don't know what i think to do you're with supposed that. to laugh is what but the the right. setup is funny, yeah. The the actual thing of him doing that, and then him going off and and like you say, following her around campus and watching her through windows and so on. Following her to a date. Mm. I was so angry. <laughs> I was so upset for Elaine at that point. <sighs> a date just... with the makeout king. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and all of his commentary that whole time, the like macho bullshit. I did not appreciate that. Right. It just frustrated me. Part of the problem is also Elaine herself is, I don't know quite the right word to use for it, but she's a bit of a non-entity. She gets won over each time very, very easily for someone that, I mean, certainly the time she goes to his loft room, she shouldn't even be going there. She should just be staying away right. from this dude. And then he convinces her everything's okay and they're going to be great and get on. And and then he proposes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the way that the movie treats marriage in general. Mm. Because Elaine does seem like the assumption is made that she is going to get married to somebody soon and she just has to kind of pick among these guys who she doesn't know that well and, you know, isn't going to sleep with first to find out how compatible they are that way. It wasn't clear to me how much of that ridiculousness is because it's would have been ridiculous in 1968 or it's ridiculous but that was the standard way to think about marriage in 1968 i suspect it's somewhere in the middle yeah probably because i didn't feel like the movie was actually portraying it as ridiculous rather than portraying it as this is just how it is because i mean at at the end of the movie she basically i don't actually know how they pulled this off but i mean they pulled off an actual rather large church wedding overnight yeah <laughs> and and so it it's one of those things where it almost feels like they had this whole wedding planned and they just needed to pick a groom up and put him in the church <laughs> 
I like that idea. And, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And, and I feel like this was still an era of time where women went to college to find a husband. I mean, yeah. I'm you've heard the jokes of getting an MRS degree, right? Yeah. And and I mean that originated from somewhere and I I feel like that was still I mean in the 60s we're coming out of that a little bit more that was more of like a 40s and 50s thing, I think. But given the parents that she had and you know the neighborhood that she grew up in and it seemed like the expectations that were had of her that that was really more of what was going on. Hmm. And so that's why she very quickly said yes to Ben and to this other guy because she had to say yes to somebody and she didn't really know who she loved. She just, or if she loved either of them, you know, she just was expected to be a good girl and get married. And Mrs. Robinson had to make a similar horrible decision when she became pregnant with Elaine out of wedlock and then had to marry Mr. Robinson. Yeah, she's not had a, a good example of a loving marriage yeah. on what a couple should be together. And and that that's actually part of where the film is almost a satire because it's supposed to be doing some of this, the new generation, sexual revolution, things are a bit different. Kids are looking to come out of college and do something great and looking to excel in their lives. And this young man doesn't know what he wants to do and his, his parents, his parents' friends are telling him, you know, get into plastics, which is just kind of a dull suggestion and doesn't mean anything. But actually what he wants to do is find a girl, settle down. <laughs> An even older style of, uh, you know, coming out of college, and that's just what you do. Yeah. Plastics is a very dull, boring suggestion, but it's also a symbol of artificiality and mm. the ascent into the upper middle class, or I guess fully accepting the upper middle class lifestyle that he's been raised in. And I know Mike Nichols uh, mentioned at one point that he did that very intentionally. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with a lot of your complaints about the relationship between Ben and Elaine. And honestly, I find the whole part of the movie with Elaine to be the least interesting part of it. And it's my least favorite part of the movie. To me, the real point of The Graduate is everything before he meets Elaine. The The stuff with Elaine is basically like what you needed to get a book or a movie made in the 60s. That's sort of like your standard rom-com plot ending that they stuck onto the end of something that otherwise would have not been able to get made, but was, I think, more interesting. Yeah, I think I agree with that because... Coming into this movie as someone who has only experienced it in the pop culture references made about it in the world that I grew up in. I mean, like I said at the beginning, I didn't know this movie was a comedy. I didn't know this movie had Elaine in it. I thought this movie was about Ben and Mrs. Robinson because those are the two things that people talk about when they talk about this movie. They don't ever talk about mm. Elaine. Yeah. And I think there's a reason for that. Catherine Ross did a great job of acting the role of Elaine, but it's not the best part of the movie. No. Yeah, and I think the story really is about Ben and his relationship to Mrs. Robinson. I think the story wanted to be about Ben and Mrs. Robinson, but I'm not sure they did a great execution on that part. Because honestly, we know as much about Mrs. Robinson by the time their affair is over as we did when it started. We didn't get any character growth or development from either of them while we were watching them together. They would just 
show up at a hotel room, and then Ben would be in the pool, and then they would show up in the hotel room, <laughs> and then Ben would be floating in his pool again, and that's all we got. And then we got the one scene where he was frustrated and wanted them to actually talk, and she was having no part of it, you know? And then they get into a fight, and then they make up, and they stay in the hotel room. Hmm. So... There wasn't really anything there. I think we wanted there to be something there, but it just wasn't. Can I give you my take on the there that's there? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that this movie is about two people who desperately want to connect to someone else and fail at it so completely in different ways. Mrs. Robinson wants to connect to someone, but she doesn't actually let herself connect to Ben. And she can't let herself connect to Ben because he's so much younger than her. Aside from the fact that it's like a little bit weird and creepy, they're at like very different life stages and have very different life experiences. He can't provide, he can't really provide her what she needs emotionally. And he's looking for the same thing. And because she's unwilling to really get close to him, he's unfulfilled as well. They're sort of like gravitating around each other, but never actually connecting. And I think that's like a very modern story to tell. Okay. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. It's just not something that I can respond to because I don't have anything to add. I see. Yeah. Part of the point where the film has frustrated you, Amanda, a bit? It's because you have to do a lot of reading into it and thinking about why might they be doing that. And take, you're, you're not informed by what's on screen and what's given. That that scene where he's frustrated with her and they have an argument, that's pretty much the only scene that we get that's in her point of view. For the rest of the time, it's all about him and his reaction to things. Uh, right. So we don't get to see her motivations. And even in that, we're informing her motivations by thinking, oh, she was pushed into this relationship, so perhaps she's looking for this. But the film isn't telling us that. I think we're going to talk something about the cinematography and the use of music uh, very shortly because it is great. The film looks beautiful in a lot of ways. It does a lot of interesting symbolism with the way it's being shot. But there's almost too much of that and we need a bit less and we need another 10 minutes of her relationship with her husband, her relationship with her daughter, something about him and his peers because there is this almost absence in the film that he has no friends or peers his age that he sees. If I could see something about he is very awkward with girls his age and that's why he's never gotten on with them or his friends always pushing him and he doesn't like it or his friends think he's weird because he's a creepy stalker dude. Um, <laughs> some, something along those lines to kind of inform these a bit more. Very much there's something yeah. to it that you're building a story on top of it and if, if you get on with the characters and want to do that, it comes across very nicely but there's not a lot of information to go on. I think this is a movie that you kind of have to watch twice to really understand and I totally get Mandy why you didn't want to pay for it twice and you know (laughs) we're all really busy uh, with our crazy podcasting schedules what I go to movies for a lot is for a story that's kind of complicated and confusing and the movies that I end up really loving the most are ones that you have to watch multiple times to really get and so this may just be a difference of what we're looking for in a movie. And The Graduate is a movie that I think really benefits from repeat viewings if you can stomach the stalkeriness. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think I'm, I'm certainly not opposed to rewatching it if it ever shows up on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something like that. Or even if I find it, you know, on TV at some point, I, I may sit down and rewatch it. I mean, like I said, I didn't actively dislike it. I know it kind of sounds like it, but it, it's really Ben that I didn't like, not the movie itself. Mm-hmm. And so maybe watching it again, going into it, knowing what's happening and, and kind of knowing more of what to expect, I may get something a little different out of it. Yeah. But there are some great things in this film that we can yeah. uh, latch onto and talk about. And, and I, I mentioned the cinematography. It got nominated for the Oscar for it. And Robert Surtees, who did the cinematography for this, uh, got nominated for a lot of shows. And he's done a, a lot of films that might not be the most famous, but are terrific to watch. Things like The Hindenburg, Mutiny on the Bounty, King Solomon's Mines, and Oklahoma. And all, all the way through this, there's just interesting use of shots where he uses a telescopic lens to film Ben running. So it looks like he's almost running on the spot for quite a long time. Yeah. And it's funny for someone who's supposed to be a track star, mm. uh, Dustin Hoffman runs super awkwardly. <laughs> he really does. Yeah, he doesn't look like the track star. <laughs> I mean, in a movie that's supposed to be a comedy, I feel bad that, like, the one thing that always makes me laugh out loud is watching Dustin Hoffman run. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fair, though. (laughs) Um, Thinking about the cinematography, the the shots that stand out to me, having only seen it the one time, Mm. are the underwater shots in the pool Mm -hmm. when he's trying out the scuba gear and he's just, like... I don't want to deal with any of you people, so I'm going to sit on the bottom of the pool. <laughs> when his parents are literally shoving him underwater yeah, as he's trying to come up. that's I think that's a metaphor for something. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it is. The final shot of, of the two of them on the, at the back of the bus. Yeah, and that long sustained shot of them just slowly, slowly returning to neutral. <laughs> right, right. Because I think both of them are feeling like, holy shit, what did we just do? <laughs> So interesting story about that shot. Um, Mike Nichols actually wasn't there that day. Um, So Mike Nichols worked really closely with the editor, Sam Osteen, and they actually had a very long, decades-long working relationship. And Sam Osteen, the editor, was on set a lot helping Mike Nichols work through things and coming up with opinions about shots. And so Sam was there acting as the director that day and because he's not quite as familiar with being a director he forgot to call cut and so they just stayed in character and that is like completely unrehearsed just like their natural reactions of trying to not break character because they were supposed to call cut and didn't and they loved that so much, they decided to keep it and put it in the movie. And I think it really makes the movie. I think it would be a much worse movie if they just were smiling and then it cut to credits. I think that the sort of ambiguous ending is what The Graduate really needs based on like how messed up everything has been up until that point. That it's not a happily ever after romance We don't really know what the future holds for them. They have just run away. She's already married to this other guy, although I guess they can probably get that annulled pretty easily. And they barely know each other. They're running off together. It works better with this ambiguous, not happy ending. 
This movie is often seen as being a lot about generational conflict. And one of the interpretations, I think, of the ending scene is that Ben and Elaine are going to just end up as Mr. and Mrs. Robinson, Mm. you know, in 20, another 20 or so years. And so as much as we try and rebel against our parents' generation, we end up accidentally following in their footsteps. Yeah, it's actually kind of satirizing the folly of youth. Yeah, exactly. Mm. They had talked about making a sequel to The Graduate, and that was kind of going to be the plot of it, that basically Ben and Elaine grow up, have a kid, I think a son, and Dustin Hoffman ends up playing Mrs. Robinson to his son's girlfriend or something like that. But obviously it never got made. Yeah, no, I I don't think you can flip the genders on this. Yeah, I don't (laughs) think think so either. I'm actually really glad it didn't get made. (laughs) Mm, Because that was one of the things I did. I did think like, oh, that would be quite an interesting conversation. How would you do that? And then I thought through and went, no, it's not an interesting conversation because the conversation is no, 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 no. weird 50 year old do because they they do the hollywood thing of casting like a 65 year old to play the 50 year old yeah <laughs> no 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 no. <laughs> but the the other great thing on the film so the cinematography there's lots of great shots lots of lots of uh symbology going on but then there's the music as well yeah and you get these wonderful songs from simon and garfunkel uh, mandy and i were talking about this earlier they, they are could be described as a middle of the road sort of duo but the songs in this, uh, certainly Mrs. Robinson and Sound of Silence, are terrific songs and used in, in very nice ways. Those are the only two. Well, they use Scarborough Fair as well. Yeah. But they basically loop Scarborough Fair twice. <laughs> it's, it doesn't quite yes. work as well. <laughs> okay, so I, so I didn't mean those were the only two songs they used, but those were the only two distinctly recognizable songs that they used. Yeah. Because I'm sorry, you guys, besides those two songs... Every single Simon and Garfunkel song sounds exactly the same. <laughs> I could not distinguish between the songs, except for particularly Mrs. Robinson, because yeah. I knew that one before. And that one is very, very much more upbeat than the other songs. The other songs are a little more melodic and flowy and, mm. and slow. They all sounded the same. And I was, I struggled with the music a little bit because I didn't think it fit with the movie. Oh really? Like even even Mrs. Robinson doesn't fit to me because it's such a happy peppy song. <laughs> We're talking about this older woman who's seducing this younger man. It should be like a sultry, like I don't know, like spicy song. Not this. Here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. You know, it's yeah. just it's very light and fluffy and poppy, and this is not a light fluffy movie. And so I did not really get the music choices so i agree that the tone of mrs robinson the song does not fit overall the theme and tone of the movie but i think it works well for the scene that they put it in the driving chasing around yeah it's like you know it's basically like a car chase soundtrack (laughs) chasing soundtrack okay and so actually mrs robinson was the only original song for this movie, the rest of the songs were already hits. Um, and this is one of the first movies to include like current pop music in the soundtrack mm. um, and sort of helped make that a more common thing. So Mike Nichols was talking to Paul Simon and 
asked him to write one original song for the movie. And when Paul played him the song, he hated it. And so then at the last minute was like, oh, well, I have this other song that I'm working on. And it was Mrs. Roosevelt. And so he just sort of changed the words. And well, actually, the song like wasn't written at all, aside from the chorus. And so you'll notice the version of Mrs. Robinson that they use in the movie doesn't have any words except for the chorus. And that's because they hadn't been written yet. Um, the like actual song Mrs. Robinson came out after the movie. Okay, yeah, it's it's quite interesting because this is one of the first times they used uh, modern pop songs to support the film, and and then had a, a kind of soundtrack with with vinyls and records being released around it. But any time it's referenced, it's Easy Rider that gets all the credits, and oh, I think really? that's just just because Easy Rider gets it has a number of different bands being used in different ways, whereas this is the Simon and Garfunkel songs made for. Or, or released for The Graduate. Yeah. I think just because uh, Easy Rider then uses it in a slightly different way and, and, and arguably a uh, more interesting way because it's got different things and different sounds going to different moments. Is this the moment where I pipe up and say I don't know anything about that movie? <laughs> Easy Rider? I honestly have no idea either. I don't know when it was from or what it's about. Oh, Easy Rider's like a year or two after this. It's it's the same period, but it's a road movie. Oh, okay. Everyone, take a drink. Mandy hasn't seen a film. <laughs> I am pop culturally deprived. What can I say? Okay, we've talked about the cinematography and we've talked about the music. I really want to talk about the ages of the characters and the actors here because Mm. when I read this, it just blew my mind, you guys. (laughs) So specifically, Mrs. Robinson blows my mind, but we'll get to her in a minute. So Ben, the character is 21. He's just graduated from college. Dustin Hoffman, who plays him, is 29. That's okay. That's not terrible, right? (laughs) The same thing with Elaine. Elaine is 19, but Catherine Ross was 27. Where it gets a little creepy. <laughs> so William Daniels, played Ben's father, was only 39. So he's only 10 years older than Dustin Hoffman. And he's playing his father. <laughs> and then, you guys, Anne Bancroft was 35. I'm not even 35 yet. I turned 35 this year. So, like, <laughs> I'm her age. I'm the same age as the woman who played Mrs. Robinson. This, this, like, my brain exploded when I figured this out. So she's only six years older than Dustin Hoffman, but Mrs. Robinson says she's twice Ben's age. So she's at minimum, you know, 42, 43. Um, They made her up to look a little bit older than that. Mm. I always assumed she was about 50. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's what I expected. And so to find out she's only 35, (laughs) and I'm basically 35, I'm like, wait, does this mean I can go seduce somebody like Dustin Hoffman? (laughs) <laughs> okay i i actually always assumed she was right around 40 based on her story about elaine's conception i assumed she was sort of like 18 19 when that happens so if okay um elaine is about 20 then having mrs robinson be in her late 30s even or early 40s makes sense hmm. yeah it was it just it blew my mind that that she because she does not look 35 in this movie, for sure. For them to have cast someone who's only six years older than, than Dustin Hoffman to be portraying this much older, much more experienced woman to seduce him just... I mean, that's Hollywood casting for you. Yeah. I, I think I read one of the actresses who got turned down. Oh, and I cannot remember who it was. But she got turned down because she was already 
like 45, they wanted someone younger to play this older woman. <laughs> yeah, it's um, pretty is, ridiculous. Oh, but <laughs> yeah. I I think I buy the age difference just because the acting is so good. Ben is so insecure and awkward and Mrs. Robinson is so self-possessed and demanding. And actually a lot of the age difference, a lot of the appearance of how old they are has to do not just with makeup, but the way that they were lit. So Mike Nichols apparently wouldn't let anybody see the dailies because he was used lighting to make Dustin Hoffman look younger and Anne Bancroft look much older. And so he didn't want her to see how he was lighting her until the movie was over because it was purposefully unflattering and he thought she wouldn't like it. Yeah, I buy that. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's totally fair. Yeah. I mean, because she certainly did not look 35 in this movie. She definitely yeah. looked older. But actually talking on Mrs. Robinson, there's something so calculated and predatory about the, when she first turns up and she's just in the background of a brief shot and you can see her watching him. And then she just turns up into his room. And, and even when she gets him to take her home, when she's first in the hotel, she just knows what she's doing. She's so calm and confident with it all. I always read it that this is not the first time she's done this. That this is something about her wanting some sort of excitement or imagination of youth. I get the impression you guys don't read that and you're actually thinking it's more this is the the, the first time she's done this or the situation she's trying to get into. No, I actually, I think you're right. When I was watching it, I was feeling like it was very calculated, like you said. She knew exactly what to say, what to do. She wasn't nervous at all, you know, and I kind of felt like as cliched as this sounds, this wasn't her first rodeo. <laughs> yeah, it, that hadn't occurred to me before, but I buy your argument, definitely. I almost wonder if, if she has done it before at some point, got a thrill out of doing that and enjoyed it, but it's almost diminishing returns. It's now so easy. She sleeps in a separate bedroom. Her husband doesn't even know or care. <laughs> There's almost no thrill to it. Yeah. The other thing I wondered is, is this the the, the weird thing that she was hoping he would be good enough for her daughter, so she throws herself at him, hoping he'll reject her, and he does, and then he doesn't. So that's why he's not good enough for the daughter. But that's just me reading into it. It's not in the text anywhere. Again, I'm not informed about it. I'm just thinking about what could be. I never thought of that. In fact, I was actually thinking the reason she was so upset and didn't want him to go out with Elaine was because she had some sort of weird feelings for him. Like, I felt like it had more to do with her than it had to do with her daughter. Mm, yeah. Yet she was so adamant about it. Mm. Not even necessarily feelings for him, but just the, he is hers. She doesn't yes. want to share. No, yeah. I totally agree with that. I think she doesn't even really like him, but she feels super possessive of him as an object almost. Yeah. Yes. Mm. So let's talk about some of our favorite moments and some of the great performance and elements of this film. Anya, what are the things that you take away from it that you really enjoyed about this? So this is the first movie that I saw that really gave me an appreciation for cinematography. Hmm. There's a sort of mix of long scenes that play out basically unedited like a play without any fancy camera work. And then they're mixed in with a bunch of sort of hyper-edited, very constructed filmic scenes. And the contrast between those two things, I think, gives the movie a really high impact. Um, and I know that during the filming, they actually covered a lot of this sort of like wackier camera angles and stuff with more traditional shots, just in case they didn't work. 
One of the other things that I really love about it is the sound editing. So they do a lot mm-hmm. of pre-lapsing and like pretty extended pre-lapsing, which is basically where you still have the video from the old scene, but you have the audio playing from the new scene. And so they use that, I think, really effectively to draw connections between two different things. One of my favorite moments is when he's on the bottom of the pool. His parents have just like shoved him under. He's feeling trapped and suffocated and super unhappy. And then he, you hear his phone call to Mrs. Robinson as he's still sitting there in the pool. And so it, that's basically, I think, showing that there's a direct connection there. Like this experience with his parents in the scuba suit has upset him so much that he has to do something crazy and drastic and take Mrs. Robinson up on her offer. There's another one where he's lying in bed with Mrs. Robinson and you hear his dad say, Ben, what are you doing? While And then it cuts to him floating in the pool. And so his dad is talking about, you know, what are you doing? Like, clearly nothing. Get off your butt and start working. But it is sort of also applicable to the fact, like, what are you doing having an affair with this woman? Yeah, it's a nice way to link scenes together and sort of segue from one point to another. Yeah, in a way that I think is, like, really clever and fun. And there are just so many iconic shots. There's sort of that that famous montage scene in the middle of the movie um, where Ben is uh like pushes himself up onto the float going from one angle of the shot and then it immediately cuts to him doing that same movement on top of mrs robinson there's the the iconic shot between mrs robinson's legs and actually right after that one of my favorite shots is when uh, mr robinson comes back in and he and ben are talking in the background but the camera is really focused just on Anne Bancroft's face in the foreground, and she's doing some really subtle, amazing face acting. I don't know if that's a term, but uh, <laughs> that's what I call it, face acting. When Ben is sort of like reaching into the closet to try and put away Mrs. Robinson's coat and messing with all the hangers, having the camera be like in the closet, they had to build the set like that on purpose without mm-hmm. a back to the closet so that the camera would fit in there. Yeah, the the pool scene, like Mandy said, it's just it's chock full of amazing cinematography. Yeah, it is a, a very well shot film, and th- and that is, I think, one of the things that sustains it so well is it's interesting to look at as you go through and and see how they put some of these sequences together. Yeah, definitely. So, Mandy, uh, what moments of the film did you enjoy the most? My favorite character in the whole movie was Ben's landlord when he has followed Elaine to Berkeley. Mm-hmm. because Mr. McCleary was his name. He was played by Norman Fell, who is also Mr. Roper. So Mr. Roper's from Three's Company, if you're not familiar, you. because I'm not entirely <laughs> pop culturally deprived, you guys. I've seen some things. I've never seen an episode of Three's Company. Oh, you guys are missing out. And Mr. Same. Roper is amazing. And so that's all I was thinking when I saw this. I was like, oh my gosh, that's Mr. Roper. And he's Pretty much exactly Mr. Roper. <laughs> Norman Fell plays Grumpy Landlord really well. <laughs> is, is that the guy who's like, I don't like you. I want you gone. You're weird. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's my favorite character in the whole movie, Which, you guys. like, that guy was on point. <laughs> he saw him straight away. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, I did think of one other scene that I want to mention. The scene where Dustin Hoffman is checking into the hotel and talking with the clerk, um, who is actually played by one of the, someone who's involved technically, uh, like one of the editors. Oh, I think it's the screenwriter. Buck Henry is the hotel clerk. Mm. Um, But the hotel clerk rings the bell and then Dustin Hoffman tries to stop him by like putting his hand on the bell and then he just like, hits Dustin Hoffman's hand. The like physical comedy and the timing of that is just so perfect. Yeah. Buck Henry, who created the TV show Get Smart, if you've ever seen that. It's a very funny old spy show. Nope. Okay. <laughs> I'm basically about as pop culturally deprived as Mandy. I think we just like hit different things. <laughs> he also wrote a film called To Die For with Nicole Kidman, which is a little bit like this film in some ways, except the older woman character gets the teenager she's sleeping with to kill her husband. Oh. Dark twist. That's not dark or anything. (laughs) Just like The Graduate, but with murder. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. But in in that scene, I love the comedy of the toothbrush. How he keeps saying, oh, I've just got my toothbrush. I can manage it. It's just my toothbrush. Pats his pocket. Oh, I got my toothbrush. You know, all this. And then it turns out he does actually have a toothbrush. He's actually brushing his teeth. (laughs) <laughs> if you're gonna go to all of the trouble to have an affair with someone, you better have fresh breath. Exactly. <laughs> but all the way through, I'm thinking he's just—that's what he's come up with off the top of his head, and that's what he's then miming. But no, 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 he's not even that creative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Ben's not a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> no. And it does take a good actor to play a bad actor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Dustin Hoffman is great in this yeah, role yeah um, i mean that that sequence which i did read was uh, mostly ad-libbed but where she's in the hotel room takes the top off he grabs her breast she carries on <laughs> and then he just walks away and starts hitting the wall <laughs> and you don't need to say anything it's just right there on screen is funny enough so apparently yeah. that experience of like touching a woman's breast like that was something that Dustin Hoffman had done in real life and something that he brought from his real life to the film. I can't remember the context, but yeah, that was like a a real life thing that he had done. Oh, and actually when he starts banging his head on the wall, funny story about that. So he, something had happened. There was like some disruption to the filming and he was trying to not laugh and not break character. And that's why mm. he was just banging his head against the wall. Yeah, so kind of ad-libbed to... Yeah. <laughs> but it's a great moment. It is a great moment. And it's actually kind of adorable that he used a real-life experience for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've, we've talked a lot about The Graduate, especially a lot about the cinematography and, and some of the you know hidden connections in the movie. Is there anything else that, that you guys think we need to talk about with The Graduate? So Mandy, I wanna I think I know the answer to this question, but this is the traditional pop culturally deprived question, so I wanna take advantage of it since I'm on the show. Would you watch <laughs> the sequel to The Graduate if it existed? I guess it would depend on what the sequel was about. The one that they were hypothetically gonna do where Dustin Hoffman seduces his son's girlfriend. No. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no. Honestly, I don't think there's any sequel to this that I would watch, even if the sequel was just watching Elaine and Ben get married, you know, or whatever. I 
I don't think so. <laughs> Zany comedy. Mrs. Robinson is actually pregnant with Dustin Hoffman's child, and Elaine's pregnant. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> the graduate. Two babies and a muddle. <laughs> oh, God. No, I think I was just trying to be nice to start with, and the, and the answer is very emphatically no. Yeah. <laughs> this is a film that is referenced, pastiched, and spoofed in a lot of different ways. Uh, there's a couple of films that come to mind when I do think about it, other than The Simpsons, which The Simpsons always did it. But the film Wayne's World 2 does uh, basically an extended sequence of this film. Almost shot for shot in places, but with its own slight references and things to it. And it's it's so nicely done with a lot of comedy. So I think that is already on the list. I think Wayne's World 1 is, and I would imagine you've not seen Wayne's World 2. That is correct. Okay. So we don't know if we're going to put Wayne's World 2 on the list until after I've seen the first one. <laughs> I, yeah, I can't imagine not watching it, because it's a superb sequel. Um, have you met me? (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, all I'm saying, okay. The other one is a film called Old School. That's a Will Ferrell movie, right? Which is Will Ferrell, Vince Vaughn, Luke Wilson, Jeremy Piven, I think is in it as well, and the lady who plays Thingy Grey on Grey's Anatomy, the main actress, whose whose name I can never remember. Great. I haven't watched Ellen. <laughs> I haven't watched a single episode of Grey's Anatomy either. Oh, that hurts my heart a little bit. Um, Ellen but, Pompeo plays Meredith Grey. That's so the one. She's in old school. She is an old school really? as well. Um, yeah, it's it's got a actually a terrific cast. I, I have an, a, a feeling from the way you're saying, oh, it's a Will Ferrell film. You don't want to put that on the list, which is not a, an unfair reaction. So, <laughs> <laughs> I have an interesting relationship with Will Ferrell and his movies. Mm-hmm. I either love them or I hate them. There's no in between. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a fair response. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, I hated all of them before Talladega Nights came out. And the only reason I liked Talladega Nights was because it's it set in North Carolina and I was living in Colorado at the time and I was super homesick. Oh. And so watching this funny movie that's set in North Carolina <laughs> was like a bomb for my soul. Right. And so that's that's when I started to like Will Ferrell. Some of his stuff I just can't okay. do. O- old school, I wouldn't describe as a Will Ferrell movie. He is a sub-character, supplementary character to it. He's not one of the leads, I would say. Okay. It sounds like I could put that on the list rather than talk about it here. Yes, put okay. it on the list. Okay. Uh, I won't give my thing about old school then. I, w- I will save it for the old school episode. But it has a, a graduate reference in it. Uh, yeah, and not even necessarily, I wouldn't describe it as a reference. There's lots of shots and use of music in the same way that you go, oh, that's that's what they're doing. I like that. Okay. Hmm. Okay, we, we will talk about that another time then. Okay, so before we finish up, we always like to do my favorite part of the show, which is listener feedback. We've had several responses to our Superman episode. And Matthew, since Superman is your favorite movie <laughs> would you like to take these yeah we've had some really lovely comments actually jazzy at jazzbot seven she said she's still scared of being buried alive she adore that you hated it mandy love what you love hate what you hate yes <laughs> people like your anger they like your hate <laughs> i know i know uh, alan at chipper alan he said that you and i are a beacon in our time we disagree with respect, warmth, and friendship, which is always a joy to hear. That gives me warm fuzzies. Because sometimes it makes me sad when we disagree. <laughs> you know, it, or when I disagree with anybody, honestly. When when we're talking to somebody who loves something so much and I just don't, it makes me feel bad. And <laughs> so I'm really glad that 
our friendship shines through that and and people like listening to us even when we're not just gushing about whatever we're mm-hmm. talking about. I like that. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any, anything coming up at all that we're going to disagree on whether we liked it or not. So that's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> he said knowingly. Um, right. Moving on. Uh, at Gypsy Librarian, couldn't remember which old Superman she had seen because it made no sense. However, after the new episode about Superman, it was definitely Superman the movie. Yes, it was. Yes, because he shoots <laughs> heat from his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Matthew, you're never going to let that one go. <laughs> well, if you want to get in touch and give us your comments on this or any other movie we've discussed, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can also email us using podcasts at eloquentgushing.com, or you can comment on this post on eloquentgushing.com. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy K. And I'm at Matthew Vos. And I'm Strangely Literal. You can find me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's literal spelled L-I-T-E-R-L because of character limit. And if you're a fan of the book or the TV show American Gods, well, first of all, if you're a fan of the book, you should definitely be watching the TV show. And you can check out my podcast on American Gods. It's called Shadows and Shamblers. And you can find us on Twitter at Shadow Shambler. And you can also find the podcast on iTunes. And you have a website too, right? It's shadowsandshamblers.com, you guys. And I'm going to tell you that the show is great. American Gods, the show is great. The book is great. And Alan and Anya's podcast is great. Mm. It comes out on Monday mornings. And it's my go-to must-listen podcast on Monday mornings. So if you're not listening to it, you really should be. I want to point out because we have been publishing on Monday mornings because we got the episodes from Stars in advance, but they stopped doing that. So we're probably going to have to switch to a Saturday publication. Please also remember to rate and review us on iTunes, to subscribe to the show and recommend it to a friend, burn a mixtape, put it on a CD, uh, tell them about it and send them over to us. Uh, Let us know when you do or when you're listening and enjoying things. We love getting your feedback and we love to say thank you for the nice words that you say to us. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived where Matthew and I will talk about Farscape Season 3. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you will know. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.